the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. It's time now for a smart plane talk regarding politics, Israel, and the law. This is the Victory Hour with Andrew Parker of Parker Daniels Keyboard. Wise counsel, winning results. Now, here's your host, Andrew Parker. I'm impressed with my attorney, Bernie. I'm impressed with his influential friends. He's got very big connections, and I follow his direction. It's Sunday, 4 o'clock, and that means it's the best hour in radio of the week. It is the Victory Hour once again this beautiful April Sunday, and we have a very special show for you today. Professor Alan Dershowitz, legendary lawyer, longtime Harvard professor, law professor, uh, and prolific author of uh, more than 30 books, uh, thousands of articles, uh, and a part of many of the most, not just uh, important uh, and famous criminal defense cases in this country's history, uh, but really establishing a number of the principles that we live by here in this country through the work of Alan Dershowitz. He will be joining us uh, today, and we're going to talk about a number of issues of the day that you are seeing in the media. So make sure to stay with us. Also, take out that number two pencil and yellow pad as we do often when listening to the Victory Hour. And jot this down because upcoming weeks we will have on the show Senator Tina Smith, Congresswoman Angie Craig, uh, both from the Liberal Democratic Party, and we want to hear their thoughts on the Victory Hour, as well as Minnesota State House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler uh, will have on the show as well, coming down the line. Uh, So uh, don't forget to tune in over the next several weeks as we're going to have those special guests. A lot has been going on since we talked last week. Uh, a lot of activity in the My Pillow Mike Lindell uh, lawsuit by Dominion Election Systems Voting Systems against My Pillow and Mike Lindell. As you know, uh, I am lead counsel for My Pillow in that case, and the Parker Daniels Keyboard Firm is representing My Pillow in that case. 
Texas counsel representing Mike Lindell in that case. Uh, we have Alan Dershowitz as a part of the team, and we may well talk about that case a little bit here today with Professor Dershowitz. Uh, let me tell you why I'm so excited to have Alan on the show today. There are few, and I dare say none in this country, that stand by fundamental constitutional principles, uh, regardless who of uh, who they are on the other side of those principles. Politics do not govern liberal, conservative, or whose team the uh, plaintiff or defense might be on. No, it's fundamental principles that govern Alan Dershowitz's argument, and they have his entire career, and what a career it has been. He graduated from Brooklyn College. He went to the law school at Yale University. He then clerked for Judge Baslin, who was the chief judge at the time of the U.S. uh, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, Uh, and then clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, uh, during which time he assisted in drafting the concurrence opinion written by Goldberg in the New York Times versus Sullivan case, the uh, seminal case on the First Amendment here in the United States. He joined the Harvard Law School faculty at age 25, he uh, became the youngest uh, tenured faculty member at Harvard Law School in the history of that institution. He was on the faculty of, uh, of Harvard for, what, I think nearly 50 years. But beyond that, he was a phenomenal and is a phenomenal uh, criminal defense lawyer. He has represented some of the most important cases in the area of due process, First Amendment rights, but also in the area of criminal defendant rights, representing students threatened with expulsion for protesting the Vietnam War, uh, defending an owner of a theater in Boston who was being Uh, barred by state authorities from showing a sexually explicit Swedish film. And uh, he defended the rights to show that film, agree or disagree uh, with them, uh, with the uh, content. Uh, He argued that case, in fact, uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court, as he has done. Uh, uh, In addition to that case, certainly a number of times, Klaus von Bülow case, many of you are aware of. He represented Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst, televangelist, you may recall, Jim Baker. You know, he doesn't select based upon how popular. And he doesn't shrink to the shrill of the majority. In fact, it is our Constitution that is drafted and is understood and has been interpreted 
to defend the minority, those who have little or no voice. And Alan Dershowitz throughout his career has given them voice. Listen, if you don't have Dershowitz books, you got to get them. I've got a number of them on my shelf, and he's written um, uh, more than 30 of them, I, I believe. And and as I uh, said before, uh, dozens of more included in his authorship, as well as uh, over a thousand articles, uh, certainly that he has published as well. And all of them, uh, with unyielding, unwavering support uh, in defense of free speech, freedom of expe- uh, freedom of expression, and due process rights. Uh, he was a member of uh, the ACLU. As you recall, he was a part of the Dream Team, the O.J. Simpson trial back in 95, and a part of the Julian Assange defense team. Again, it is not about the popularity of the defendant or who is being represented. It is about the concepts and the principles that are pillars of this great country that we cannot allow due to trend or the latest fad or the majority trying to run roughshod. No, these are pillars that are unchanging. And they need to be. And a defender of them consistently is Alan Dershowitz. Alan, thank you so much for being with us on the Victory Hour this beautiful Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I mean, you've proved, I think, that I've been boringly consistent all through my life. That's right. I've been doing this now 65 years, and I've never changed my principles. It doesn't matter who the person is, whether I voted for him or against him, like him, don't like him, buy his pillows, don't buy his pillows. (laughs) It doesn't matter at all. Uh, For me, it's the Constitution and civil liberties and due process and uh, you know, I've represented half of my cases pro bono. I'm now helping out some students who have been expelled from school because of their tweets and things of that kind. Uh, you know, we're living in a very dangerous age for freedom of speech and for due process. And uh, I see my role as bucking the current trends toward denying due process and denying free speech and hoping to go back to a time when we really recognize that what distinguishes our country from most others has been historically our commitment to freedom of expression, to diversity of viewpoints, to due process, and to a range of constitutional rights, all of which are quickly disappearing in front of our eyes, and we have to fight back. And it's it's so I intend to devote the rest of my life to doing. Well, it is uh, it is so dangerous what we are facing today and on the other side of this we got it we got to take a quick break but on the other side of uh paying for shows such as this as we need to do we uh we we're going to talk with alan dershowitz about what we are facing and what the constitution is facing and the defenders of the constitution are facing in the name of what has been referred to as cancel culture Alan Dershowitz has a wonderful book that just came out in the last several months uh, called Cancel Culture, the latest attack 
on free speech and due process. And there are few, if any, who know more about the subject than Alan Dershowitz because of his historic perspective as well uh, and his consistent, unwavering uh, view and defense of the First Amendment and due process rights. So when we get back, we're going to have that discussion with Professor Alan Dershowitz. Make sure to stay with us. And while we're gone, just, you know, very quickly, and I miss you all already, go to ParkerDK.com where you will learn about the premier law firm in downtown Minneapolis that is now representing my pillow, who has not just been attacked, but they are attempting to cancel. It's not going to happen. We'll be right back. It started way back in third grade. I used to sit beside him. We're back. It's the victory hour, and we're with George Strait today. Yes, always, uh, always the best. And I know a lot of you, you, uh, you tune in not just to hear the wisdom, but to hear the music. So we let you do that. We are today, though. Uh, blessed, really, to uh, have a very special guest and. And uh, a colleague of mine who I have worked now uh, on a couple of cases with, uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz, legendary lawyer and and absolute paragon defender of the United States Constitution, in particular the First Amendment and due process rights. And we're talking now about cancel culture. You know, people are saying, uh, Professor... We must do something about this disinformation, about all the false, misleading, dangerous speech out there. And it is, it is undermining our democratic system. What is the answer to that? They're saying silence it, outlaw it, destroy it. And if it means we have to give in a bit on the First Amendment, we do so. Well, that's an old argument. It's an argument that was made by John Adams when he helped enact the Alien and Sedition Act in uh, the last few years of the 18th century. We can't tolerate this kind of speech that's going on in the United States. People are supporting France. Uh, They want to make us into a democracy. Oh, my God. We have to start putting people in jail who are engaged in sedition. And then Thomas Jefferson, of course, ran against the Alien and Sedition Act, um, was elected abolish them. And we haven't had uh, since that time as much of an effort to try to suppress speech, with the possible exception of McCarthyism, uh, which occurred when I was a young man. I fought against it. I was a virulent anti-communist. I hated communism. I hated Stalin. I hated the Soviet Union, but I also hated McCarthyism, efforts to try to silence dissidents and professors and, and try to get the movie industry to cancel uh, Hollywood stars and directors try to get the television industry through something called Red Channels. Um, when I was in college, they tried to fire professors. I was a student government president, and I stood up against the firing of the professors, even though I disagreed fundamentally with their politics. So it's an old argument, and the answer to bad speech is good speech. The answer to dangerous speech is to answer it. 
to respond to it in the marketplace of ideas. That's what we've been doing for the last 225, 30 years, and uh, let's continue to do it. Uh, you know, we were winning the battle. Uh, we're not losing it. We lose it when we surrender to the censors, when we say we're not smart enough or strong enough. I'll give you an example. There's a debate now going on about the vaccine. Okay, people say, yeah, it's a good thing to have. People say, no, we don't want to have vaccines made compulsory. It's a debate. So Bobby Kennedy, the son of Robert Kennedy, the former attorney general, Bobby Kennedy, is skeptical of vaccines. I'm more supportive. So he challenged me to a debate. And we had a debate. It was a very thoughtful debate. It was all over television. It was on YouTube. It was on Rumble. YouTube has just taken it down. They do not want their viewers and listeners to hear a debate between Robert Kennedy and Alan Dershowitz on vaccination. They're afraid maybe they'll hear some views that might pose dangers. But I responded to all those views. And why do they have to take down the debate? But that's the current culture. If you don't like something you're hearing, if you don't like something that somebody's saying, you don't respond, you don't debate. You censor. That's not the American way. And does the law allow it? I mean, what can you do about this cancel culture? Here's the problem. Cancel culture is itself protected by the First Amendment. That's right. People have a right to cancel. Uh, Google is a private company. Um, You know, if Google called me and said we need to defend our First Amendment rights, I would probably have to say, look, I disagree fundamentally with what you're doing about how you're using your First Amendment rights. But you have the right to do that. Well, we have the right to stand up to you and say you're wrong for what you're doing. You know, the First Amendment gives you the right to be wrong. A lot of people find that hard to accept, the right to be wrong. Why should people have a right to be wrong? Because we don't know in the end what's ultimately right and what's ultimately wrong. That has to be judged over time by the marketplace of ideas. We're just not sure enough. We thought things were right, which turned out to be wrong. We thought things were wrong, which turned out to be right. So we have to keep the marketplace open, and that's what America has been all about for the last 225 years, and we have to keep it that way. Yeah, and isn't it a central issue as to, well, who decides what's false information, disinformation, misinformation? Who makes that decision? And and a marketplace yeah. of ideas answer to that question is what and, – and believe me, you know, it, it becomes a hurly-burly, a battle, a grappling, a wrestling match in the marketplace. And that's what we need because be. out of it, it should be, yeah. percol- percolates you know, truth. Yeah. Chief Justice Rehnquist, and, you know, I was a critic of many of his opinions. He was too conservative for my personal views. But he wrote a brilliant decision in which he said that the First Amendment does not recognize – a false idea. All ideas are created equal under the First Amendment. You think the world's flat? Okay, say it. You think the Holocaust didn't occur? Well, you're an ignoramus and a bigot if you say that, but I'm going to defend your right to say it, and I'm going to prove that it did occur. I'm going to show you what happened to my relatives in the death camps, but you can say it if you want to, if that's your opinion. We'll judge your opinion. We'll judge you for what you are if you express views like that. But we're not going to stop you from saying it. In other countries in the world, they do stop people from saying it. I'll give you an example. In Turkey today, it is a crime to say that the Turks killed Armenians and it was an Armenian genocide back in 1917. So it's a crime to say the Armenian genocide occurred. In France, it's a crime to say the Armenian genocide did not occur. So we now live in a world where 
everything you say in one part of the world is broadcast in other parts of the world. So if you live in Europe, you cannot talk about the Armenian genocide. Because if you say it occurred, you're committing a crime in Turkey. If you say it didn't occur, you're committing a crime in France. We shouldn't be making crimes out of those kinds of allegations. In Poland, I went to Poland a few years ago and I made a speech in Krakow. And they had just passed a law making it a crime to say that Polish people collaborated with the Nazis in the extermination of the Jews. And I knew from personal and family experience that some Polish people were heroes, but other Polish people did collaborate. And I got up and I made a speech saying that. And I said, if you want to arrest me, please do. I'm going to persist in saying what I believe to be the truth. If you want to arrest me, I'll be happy to stand on trial. Well, needless to say, they didn't arrest me, and I continued to make my speech. But do we really want to live in a country where people can get arrested for expressing views about history or about science, about vaccinations that we may disagree with? And that's just not the kind of country that I was brought up in and not the kind of country I love. Well, you know, I've, I've talked about it often on this show. Uh, uh, the Nazis were allowed uh, to march in Skokie, Illinois. I was one of their defenders. My mother. They're, they're a perfect example. <laughs> right. My mother called me on the phone and said, whose side are you on the Jews or the Nazis? Yeah. I said, Mom, on the side of the First Amendment. She <laughs> said, I'm your mother. Don't talk to me that way. You've got to pick sides, either the Jews or the Nazis. I said, Mom, I'm picking the First Amendment. I'm on the side of free speech. She never understood. But, no. You know, she didn't go to college. Uh, she wasn't educated like some people today who are engaging in modern left-wing McCarthyism. You know, I have lost so many friends, people I've known for years, people whose kids I helped to get into college, people whose kids I represented at 3 o'clock in the morning when they were picked up for drunken driving, people whose fathers I represented pro bono. They won't speak to me anymore because I defended the rights of Donald Trump not to be impeached on unconstitutional impeachment grounds. And as a result of me performing my duty as a lawyer, my friends won't talk to me anymore. I like to say I've lost 20 pounds on the Trump diet because nobody invites me to dinner anymore. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, you know, that's, that's why I love you. I mean, you are unwavering in your support of the United States Constitution, in particular the Bill of Rights, and in particular the First Amendment and due process yeah. rights. And, and there are just so few people. Uh, that are, you know, times are going to change. They're going to be fads. There's going to be trends. There's, oh, yeah. there's yeah, going to be people, movements. Yeah. There's gonna, times are going to change. But those fundamental pillars do not change. And no, I agree with it. And, 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 you know, it's so important that we have law firms like yours out there also defending the rights of people. You may agree with, you may disagree with. Again, you and your law firm have been exemplars of the rule of law and of doing well for your clients and people who have you as their lawyer are so fortunate because you, again, you're unwavering in your principal commitment, A, to due process and freedom of speech, but B, most importantly, to the welfare of your clients and you do great work. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Now, listen, uh, Alan, a couple of examples, because I know you, you're very familiar with them. In, in academia, in, in universities and colleges around this country, where if you don't toe the line, you're done. Your whole career is yeah. over. Yeah. I well, mean, this is unbelievable McCarthy. McCarthyism. 
Look, look at my friend Ron Sullivan. Ron Sullivan is a very distinguished lawyer. He's the first African-American ever appointed to be the dean of a Harvard college. And then he decided to help just for about a month to help Harvey Weinstein in making some constitutional arguments in his defense. And as a result of that, Harvard fired him from being the dean of the college because the students said they didn't feel safe in the presence of a lawyer who was representing Harvey Weinstein. The same lawyer, Ron Sullivan, had represented, you remember the tight end of the New England Patriots, Hernandez, who yes. was prosecuted for killing and convicted of killing two people right. uh, in cold blood and gangland-type murders. And the same students didn't feel unsafe when he was representing this person who may have committed two murders and eventually killed himself. That they weren't afraid of. But Harvey Weinstein, you know, an overweight film producer, uh, they were terrified that my friend Ron Sullivan might represent him. He was convicted. He's on appeal now. Uh, he may win the appeal. It's a very strong appeal. But that's what the legal system is about. But Harvard couldn't understand that. And they fired him. That was one of the worst breaches of academic freedom since McCarthyism, in my experience. And it's happening all over. Uh, a student called me the other day. He got admitted to a major, major elite law school. And then they discovered a tweet or some social thing from four years earlier when he was like in high school in which he said something foolish about transgender people and they withdrew his admission yeah rescinded his admission even though he was a summa cum laude graduate of an elite college and got incredibly high grades on the law school aptitude test but because he had made they thought a mistake made an insensitive statement to friends on a closed social media network. And the the tweet wasn't even up there anymore. Somebody had taken a photo of it and sent it to the school, and the school rescinded his admission. And I'm now helping him. Well, it's, you know, it's terrible. It's a, it's a trend that this country uh, needs to shift and move away from before it gets any worse. We're going to take a... Uh, Short break here again and be back with Professor Alan Dershowitz as we are talking about uh, his new book, Cancel Culture, the latest attack on free speech and due process and the issues uh, surrounding cancel culture. When we uh, come back, I do want to talk to uh, Professor Dershowitz about a little bit about the 2020 election and some work that we are doing as well. I'm going to shift to... Maybe his comments on Black Lives Matter, on the Jewish state of Israel, and uh, whether or not Israel is an apartheid state. A little bit different subject, but one that we talk about every week, as you know. Politics, Israel, and the law. That's what the Victory Hour discusses. Smart Plane Talk. We'll have a little bit more of it on the other side. Go to ParkerDK.com. Stay with us. back. It's the Victory Hour. I'm Andrew Parker, and today we uh, are honored to have Professor Alan Dershowitz with us talking about cancel culture and freedom of speech and the impacts that, uh, well, the social media giants are having on 
uh, freedom of speech. They have a lot of control, no question about it. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, Alan, uh, what you think about the debate over the 2020 election. And the fact of the matter is there are millions in this country uh, that believe, with foundation or otherwise, that believe that uh, the integrity of the 2020 election was greatly compromised. And some believe that, in fact, uh, the uh, result would have been different had it not been compromised. Is it constitutional to cancel someone because they question the integrity of the process? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, Look, I myself believe that the election was generally fair. I think there were problems in Pennsylvania. I think the court should have taken the Pennsylvania case because they extended voting days beyond that which the state legislature had authorized, and that violates the United States Constitution. I think the Texas case should have been taken by the Supreme Court as well. I think Texas did have standing to challenge results in other states because it impacts Texas voters. I myself haven't seen the evidence that would suggest that the results of the election would have been different uh, but for these deviations. But that may be out there. I mean, you'll acknowledge that may be out there. There's there's no question. There's no question that people have challenged and our own client uh, has challenged, obviously, the use of some of the machines and computer programs that we use to count votes. And of course you can challenge that. That's part of our First Amendment right to petition government for a redress of grievances. And when a private company counts votes, it's the government, essentially, because the government has delegated to this private company the right to perform a governmental function. After all, it's the function of government to count votes. And if the government says to a company, we're paying you to do what we're supposed to do, count the votes, because it's not like in you know, 1789, where you can sit down with a box and open up the box and count the three, 400 ballots. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of, of ballots, uh, state and federal elections. So when a company does that and people criticize the company, as our client has done, it's like criticizing the government. And there is a near absolute right to criticize the government, to petition the government for a redress of grievances. On the day of the election, I called for what I called a VIP, a voter integrity panel, the appointment of an objective group of people, former justices, judges, presidents of universities, priests, rabbis, ministers, very distinguished people, scientists, to serve on a commission to be able to review every single election before the election, during the election, after the election, to look at every challenge because it's so important that everybody in America believe that the election was fair. And right now, that's not the situation. And when a company like the company that manufactured these computers and programs sues a critic and tries to put them out of business, that undercuts democratic accountability and undercuts freedom of speech. And that's why the two of us are vigorously defending the right of people to express views, views that we might not necessarily, I don't speak to you, I speak to myself, views that we might not necessarily completely agree with the support, but we agree with the right of people who believe them deeply, and our client believes these views deeply, to the core of his being, he has the right to express them. So I wanted to get your judgment uh, regarding one of our justices on the United States Supreme Court, uh, the most senior now, I believe, 
Justice Clarence yeah. Thomas, who uh, is starting to uh, dig at some of the foundations of the First Amendment in some of his uh, writings or thoughts. Uh, what's your sense of that? Well, he's made an interesting argument. Uh, it's not one that I completely agree with, but I'm glad he started the conversation. Makes an interesting argument. He said at the time the First Amendment was adopted, there was always a concept uh, called either common carrier or um, um, other others as well that said, look, if you hold yourself as somebody who is open to everybody in the public, like you know a train company or a bus company or uh, uh, later it was said a telegraph company. You can't say no Jews allowed to use my machine. You can't say no blacks allowed to use my machine. And he's saying you can't say no Republicans uh, are not allowed to use um, our tech, our technique. And and what he's saying is maybe the concept of common carrier should apply to Facebook and, and Google and, and Twitter. It's an interesting point. It does challenge the First Amendment because these companies are private companies. And when you call them you know, common carriers, you're basically giving them the responsibility that governments have not to discriminate. And so it's an interesting debate to have. I think it's good that we're having the debate, but um, I can't right now come down on the side of Clarence Thomas. I, I commend him for starting the debate, but I think we have to think about it more. We have to debate it more. We have to be open to all sides of the issue. We have to make sure that in the end, the First Amendment is not compromised. Absolutely. I want to uh, ask you, Alan, uh, since we uh, we have a few minutes uh, left here before our next break. You know, you were on the team that defended uh, O.J. Simpson uh, in that famous trial back in, I think it was, 95. We have now a significant trial uh, involving uh, George Floyd here here in uh, Minneapolis. And the city and the whole country really are are watching uh, this trial as it unfolds. What are your thoughts as it relates to the defense of Derek Chauvin? Do you think he has a uh, a defense? Do you think it's a foregone conclusion? Is this a case you would have taken? Well, first of all, I don't think the case should be tried today in Minneapolis. Um, I think there's too much of a danger that jurors, even as honest as they are, and as often as they're told not to listen to what's going on outside, I am very concerned that jurors might think that if they were to acquit or come to a hung jury or convict on a lesser count, it might pose a danger to their businesses, to their communities, to their school, to their children, even to their own safety. The judge seems to recognize that because he has made the jurors' names unavailable. This is an anonymous jury to protect the jurors from possible recriminations. I think the trial should have been conducted in a part of rural Minnesota, which is not subject to the kinds of threats or risks that could occur in Minneapolis were there be uh, a verdict of acquittal. I don't think there's going to be a verdict of acquittal. I think that the state has made a very compelling case on causation, um, I think Dr. Tobin overstated his conclusions when he said there were no other causative factors than the knee on the neck. He excluded completely any influence of the heart condition, the drugs. I don't think a scientist can do that. I think he was wrong. 
Uh, after all, George Floyd had an enlarged heart. And if you have an enlarged heart, you need more oxygen to sustain life. And therefore, I don't think a scientist could say conclusively that had he been a young, healthy man, not on drugs, without an enlarged heart, he would have succumbed to nine minutes of the knee on the neck. Maybe, but you have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. But I think the government will prevail, the state will prevail on the issue of causation, and then the issue of intent comes up. Uh, I don't think this is a murder case. I don't think they have it on either second-degree murder, which requires essentially felony murder, or on third-degree murder, which requires the lives of others. But the Minnesota courts have ruled that others may mean the victim himself. So they may get away with a third-degree murder prosecution. If I were the judge, I would strike the second-degree murder prosecution at the close of the government's case. I think it's a matter of law. It hasn't been established, but I do think there'll probably be a conviction, at least on the manslaughter charge. And if I had to guess, I would bet also on the third-degree murder charge. But you never know. People thought that there would be conviction in the O.J. Simpson case. You know, it's interesting that people who watch the O.J. Simpson trial on television, gavel to gavel, weren't surprised at the verdict. But people who got their news through CNN and through the New York Times, they were shocked because, of course— they got filtered news that right. presented a one-sided case against O.J. Simpson. So I think the same thing is going to be true here. If you've watched every minute of the trial, you know it's a little bit more complex than the way CNN has presented it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, uh, we're talking to Professor Alan Dershowitz. The insights as it relates to the Chauvin trial, as it relates to Clarence Thomas's recent views and objections to the 2020 election uh well some of the best insights you can you can get from anyone why because he's been there he's seen it and uh he is steadfast and unwavering in his principles can't say that for many people nowadays unfortunately when we come back after our last break here we're going to talk with professor dershowitz about the jewish state of israel and uh, about the relationship between Black Lives Matter and anti-Semitism. So make sure to stay with us. Go to ParkerDK.com during this short break and listen to a little George Strait. I was a young troubadour When I wrote in on a song I'll be an old troubadour We're back, coast-to-coast live streaming. You're listening to the Victory Hour. You can get the podcast as well. Just throw my name in there. You you, you punch that uh, little podcast symbol on your smartphone, and you put my name in there, and it comes up. It's unbelievable. And and it says the Victory Hour on it. You punch that, and then you get the Dershowitz uh, uh, show on the Victory Hour. Or you can go to the Dersh Show. The Durst Show is a fabulous podcast. You should go to that as well and get the uh, Cancel Culture book by Alan Dershowitz. Uh, listen, uh, talking to Professor Dershowitz, he has written a number of books on Israel, the case for Israel, uh, why Israel. Uh, and, and these are not just based on uh, Jewish tradition or the fact that Alan Dershowitz uh, does happen to be Jewish. He has studied these issues. This is for the betterment of the world. 
is Israel, Professor, is Israel an apartheid state? Of course not. It's one of the most diversified states in the history of the world. It has people of every shade of color background. It has um, people from uh, Ethiopia. It has people from the former Soviet Union, from China, from um, all over North Africa and many parts of uh, deep Africa. Um, There are 15 or 16 languages that are spoken. Everybody in Israel has equal rights religiously. Uh, You know, there are Muslim mosques, obviously. There are Jewish synagogues. There are Catholic churches. There are Russian Orthodox churches. There are Zoroastrian places to worship. There are uh, Quaker. There are uh, Mormon. Uh, it's, It's the most diverse country, certainly in the Middle East, and no country in history has contributed more to humankind in the 73 years of its existence than Israel has. Just look at what it's doing now with the uh, with the virus. It's uh, it's leading the world in getting people vaccinated. Uh, just today, there was a major breakthrough uh, scientifically. Uh, Israel has contributed so much to the world in terms of human rights, and you know it's a country that since even before it was born. It was threatened with destruction by its by its Arab neighbors. Uh, the, the head of the Palestinians, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, was an ally of Adolf Hitler. He helped bring about the final solution. He was regarded as a war criminal, and he was widely supported by the Palestinians. And, uh, you know, when Israel was established, it created equal rights. Its Declaration of Independence bestows equal rights on Arabs and Muslims. That isn't true of any other country in the Middle East. You can't be a Jew and buy property, for example, in Jordan or many of the other countries. And I think that Israel is now moving toward peace with some of the Arab neighbors, uh, the Sunni Arab countries. I played a teeny, teeny, teeny role during the Trump administration in working with the Trump White House on trying to bring about some of the major changes that Trump did toward Israel, recognition of Jerusalem as the capital, recognition of the Golan Heights as part of Israel, um, creating relationships between Israel and Bahrain and uh, the United Arab Emirates. So I think it's moving in the right direction. But the great danger is Iran. Iran has pledged to destroy first the little Satan, namely Israel, and then the big Satan, namely the United States. And it's trying to develop nuclear weapons, and it will use those nuclear weapons if it ever gets to develop them. And that's why it's so important for Israel to continue to do what it did today, this morning. It, through uh, using its superior uh, insights electronically, managed to damage significantly the Iranian nuclear facility at Natanz. And I hope it continues to do that because the world with nuclear-armed Iran would be a far more dangerous place than it is today, even with nuclear-armed North Korea, Pakistan, and other countries in the world. Iran with nuclear weapons would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. There's no no question question about it. Alan, uh, quickly, as we only have about a minute left, but what struck struck me was uh, you saying uh, that this is a democratic uh, uh, country with uh, complete uh, rights and freedoms for uh, Arabs within Arab citizens of uh, the state of right. Israel, they get to vote. They have members in the Knesset and the Parliament. They have member. Uh, they have uh, Arabs on the Supreme Court, I believe. They might even be part of the current government. Yeah, uh, if not, who forms a government? 
you will probably include one of the Arab parties. Um, you know, that just doesn't happen in other parts of the Middle East. So, you know, from every point of view, from a human rights point of view, from an American alliance point of view, people should support Israel. It's our greatest ally. We work together militarily. Technologically, the United States protects Israel. Israel protects the United States. And it's it's one of the most liberal countries in the oh, Middle yeah, East. The yeah. liberals in this country should be the backbone of support for of the course. state of and Israel. And they used to be. And they, and used, they to used to be. And something has happened. And I think partly Black Lives Matter has to play some negative role. In its platform, it declares Israel to be an apartheid genocidal state which is why, though, I support the concept of Black Lives Matter. I cannot support the organization that has a platform that is so bigoted and anti-Semitic as the Black Lives Matter platform is. So I distinguish between the concept and the platform, and I fight against the platform. I couldn't couldn't agree more, Professor. The, uh, The platform, we disagree, the organization, but the idea, we completely agree with. Professor Alan Dershowitz... A huge thank you to you. Uh, We'll talk to you tomorrow as we continue our work. Uh, And for all of you out there, have a wonderful week. We'll be back next week for another great hour of the Victory Hour.